Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We're in Genesis 42. You'll find this on pages 35 and 36 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. One thing I neglected to announce is that uh, at the end of this service, I'll be at the back. Uh, Dr. Dudley will give the benediction, and I'd love to say hi to you if you're visiting, or if you're a member too, just love to see you. So I'll be there at the back at the end of the service. Before we hear God's Word, let's pray together. Lord, now what we need is you to open our eyes. We are so blind to the beauty of Jesus. Would you show it to us from this text, from this narrative account, what happened in space-time history of this reunion of Joseph and his brothers. Unfold the riches of your grace to us from it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 42, beginning at verse 1, this is God's holy, inspired, and therefore inerrant word. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. And he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place until, unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. 
And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound them before his eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they returned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons. If I do not bring him back to you, put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring my gray hairs with sorrow to shale. Grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the living God will stand forever and ever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Some of you all know that when we moved here in the late summer, fall of 2021, about a month after we moved here, um, my mama was real sick, and uh, typical of my mom, she did not tell my brothers and I how sick she was. She had congestive heart failure and uh, passed away in October uh, that year, so about two months, three months after we moved here. And shortly before she died, we were able to get everybody together down in Orlando, Florida, where my brother lives, and we had transported my mom there, we had the ideal setup. And it was one of those rare occasions where kind of everybody's schedules synced up, and friends and family from around the country came, and it was a sweet, sweet time. Um, My brothers, I have a bunch of brothers, there's a lot of us, Um, sorry to the world for that, but there's a bunch of us, and we we were very close. And it's one of the things as I grow older that I prize more than anything, is how much I love my brothers and how much I know they love me. And I realize that's not the case for a lot of families. And when you get together, like Easter's coming up and holidays, one of the most stressful things for us can be a family reunion. Like you don't know what that uncle's going to say. And I've always, as I think about that, I've always wondered, am I that uncle? Am I going to be that guy who says that? But you've got that, you've got all kinds of kind of surface level strife and then really deep things below the surface. And here's one encouragement as you think about that. The family you think is the most normal family you know is dysfunctional. Okay, just just know that going into it. 
Everybody in here is part of a dysfunctional family. Even if you have a great family life, because remember, we're in the story of Joseph, which is the story of Jesus, and if you're a Christian, this is part of your family story, okay? So we're all part of this dysfunction. We're all in this together. Now, what we're going to see in this family reunion as it begins here in chapter 42 is this is one big unit of text in the original, stretches from 42 to 45. If you were reading this in Hebrew, no chapter numbers, no verse numbers, but there's markers in these sections by the author to tell you this is a separate section of texts. So we're starting this morning talking about a family reunion of Joseph and his brothers. Remember, they've been apart for 20 years. Joseph's almost 40, probably at this point. Some of his other brothers would be getting gray hairs. They hadn't seen him. They wouldn't recognize him. He had taken to himself the garments and language of Egypt. All of these men would have had beards. That was very typical of this Jewish culture, still is to this day. Joseph would have been clean-shaven. He would have not spoken with an accent. They would not have recognized him. And the whole point of what God is going to do through this part of Joseph's story is this. And here's where we want to focus this morning. He is going to test Joseph and his brothers and us in order to produce the image of Jesus in us. In other words, he will test our faith, and we're going to talk about that in just a second, for the goal of making us more Christ-like. That is what this episode is about. So we'll look at this text under two headings. In the first place, Joseph tested, and then in the second place, his brothers tested. And did you see that these tests were centered around three R verbs that I read that come through nicely in our English translations? Recognition, remembrance, and reckoning. Okay, that's how this test comes about. So let's talk about Joseph's test briefly. He's been through the tests I think all of us think about when we hear the word trial or affliction. Sold into slavery, betrayed by his brothers, betrayed by the people who are supposed to get him out of prison, unjustly accused, left in a prison to rot, then exalted to this ruler of the land. Joseph's life since he was sold into slavery has been one long trial. But now he faces a different kind of test, the test of prosperity. And dare we say that maybe in America, in the American church, that's the biggest trial of all. Okay, so we, we have so much to be thankful for in this country. We have prosperity. And the American church has enjoyed so much prosperity. Um, physical, financial, spiritual. God's been so good to the church, but you see so many scandals arising now and all these things going on in churches And I think it's one way of God testing us, saying, how are you going to handle the trial of prosperity? So here's Joseph, most powerful man in the world, second only to Pharaoh, second most powerful man in the world. His brothers show up. Now, they would have stood out because they spoke in their Hebrew dialect. So he knew immediately. And they come, and you look at verse 6, they bow down to him. It's not lost on Joseph. It's lost on them. It's not lost on Joseph that God has kept his word. Now, what could he have done in this situation? He could have looked at his brothers and said, I told you so. I told you this was going to happen. He could have used his power and his might to shame them. Instead, we're going to see that God has done a mighty work in Joseph's heart 
to the point that he's produced wisdom in Joseph through these trials. He'll produce wisdom in us through our trials. Joseph has a plan as he walks his brothers through all that they're going to go through in order to bring them to a place of full reconciliation. So he's passing this trial of prosperity. He's learned so much about God on the bad days that now that the good days have come, he remembers that he's nothing apart from God. He doesn't need to seek vengeance. It's no longer about him and his needs as it was when we first met him. He's using and stewarding his power for good. Not only does it produce wisdom in Joseph, it produces gentleness. Don't you love that detail that as he hears Reuben admit that Reuben had a conscience still 20 years earlier. And Reuben was the one who said, don't do this. Don't sell him into slavery. Joseph overhears this. And his past comes flooding back to him. And he breaks down and he weeps. That's a strong verb in our language and in the original. This is a man who's breaking down, crying. Now, even in our society, it's still considered, you know, It's not acceptable for a man, for example, to go do that in public. That's kind of outmoded. But especially in this society, that's not what men did at all, especially men of rank and importance. That's why he turns away and gives full flood to his emotions. Now, one of the things we want to notice about that is that as Joseph does this, he's become gentle. See, again, the fact that he stops and weeps means this is not a guy who's saying, God, I am going to one day get mine. That was not what fueled him through prison. It was the grace of God. It was the faithfulness of God. And now it's made him gentle. And you say, well, that seems contradictory because it says he spoke roughly to them. Three times the text, four times the text tells us that. He spoke roughly to them. Why? How can that be gentle? Because the best way for Joseph to love his brothers is to find out if they have been changed. What did they say to him? We're honest men. What does Joseph know about them? No, you're not. Okay? So he has to then see if they've changed. And then even in the middle of this episode, he recognizes that they have begun to change. So he reveals a little bit about himself. He says, do this and you will live. You know where else we're going to read that, by the way? Leviticus 19. So this is foreshadowing. This is a, a, a phrase that would have been kind of like a signal to them that, hey, I know the God of Israel. And then he clears up any confusion when he says, I fear God. I fear Elohim, the real God. So they're going, who is this guy who knows the living and true God, who is part of this pagan empire that determines our destinies? And Joseph does that and then puts them through this test of leaving Simeon. Okay, he's got to find out, are they still the same plotting bloodthirsty brothers of 20 years before or have they changed he's got hints that they've changed he wants to make sure of it now here's one thing to focus on before we think about his brother's test everybody in here has a past and i'm willing to bet that a lot of your past has shame and regret in it and you may lay awake at night thinking if only i had or if only i hadn't Or you say to yourself, there's no way somebody could love somebody like me because of all the things I've done. And and again, just remember this. We all show up here on Sunday mornings and when we see each other like during the week 
and everybody's good, right? Hey, everybody's fine. How y'all doing? We're good. And there's nothing wrong with exchanging pleasantries. I'm not anti-pleasantry exchanging at all. But we're all putting on a mask, okay? And what that can tend to do is lead people to believe that you've got it all together when I know for a fact you don't. How do I know that? Because I don't, okay? That's how you know. Everybody has a past. And Joseph's past here overwhelms him. And yet, because of what God did for him in his trials, he can redeem that past. And he can do the same for us today. You have to, we have to all remember, our past does not define us. Isn't that good news? I'm really thankful my past doesn't define me. I'm really thankful that in my present circumstances, God is still at work and he's not done with me yet. And if you're a Christian here this morning, he's not done with you either. And no matter what happens in your past, Joseph is such a model for us of just kind of living with his emotions, but also moving forward in faith. And that's what God calls us to do, as we recall our past, as we experience regret and shame. We bring that to the foot of the cross, and we recognize that the same God who worked in Joseph's past will work in yours and in mine. So here's the test for Joseph. What will he do when prosperity comes? And here's how he passes it. He's become wise. He's become gentle. He's become a different man. What about the brother's test? Are they any different? Well, let's walk through that just quickly. Notice how this, this begins, by the way. Uh, things have not changed with Jacob. Okay? He basically looks at them and says, um, hey guys, you're being lazy. And they were. It's a little bit harsher in the Hebrew. He says to them, basically, get up off your lazy rear end and go get us some food. Okay? That's essentially what he's saying to them. And so they go down to Egypt and they've left their father. And notice what Jacob does. I want you to stop and put yourself in the brother's shoes. They have heard this before. They heard it 20 years ago. Remember when they came back and said, they lied to Jacob, oh, your son's been killed, and they'd taken the blood of a goat and thrown it on Joseph's garment. And what did Jacob do? He goes into a sinful form of grieving. He says, I've lost everything. And they're sitting here going like, Dad, they're still us. And now 20 years later, what does he say to them? Uh, 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 no, just leave Benjamin. What do you think they felt? Oh, so not just Joseph was your favorite. Now it's Benjamin. He's your favorite. We're all expendable. You don't care if we die. We can go down to Egypt and be killed or die of famine, but you still just care about one favored son. Let me say a couple things about that. First, to us as parents, this, this kind of goes without saying, but we shouldn't pick favorites, should we? The story of the patriarchs is a lot of family dysfunction. Okay, These are messed up families. All right? And one of the things we strive after as parents is to treat our children the way God treats us as his children. God doesn't pick favorites with his family. He loves his children equally, okay? And then the second thing we want to notice here is how to grieve well. Okay, that's a tricky subject, isn't it? Because grief is going to hit each and every one of us differently, okay? There's no right or wrong way to grieve in that sense. There is a sense in which the scriptures tell us, as Paul reminds us, that we shouldn't grieve as those who have no hope. Okay, that's a sinful kind of grieving that becomes selfish. That's what Jacob's problem was. See, he had taken his eyes off God, and the minute he did that, the minute he stopped having faith in God, what happened? He became self-protective. 
He said, oh, I've got to protect my assets, my kids. That was the biggest asset to a man in this culture. And so he says, I can't trust God to come through for me, so I'm going to use what I call the Geico policy of faith. You know, you got God, then you got your supplementary insurance policy, which is me keeping Jacob at home or keeping Benjamin at home. That's what we all do, isn't it? And when we do that, we've become self-centered. And when we become self-centered in our grief, we miss what God is trying to do in our grief. Okay? This doesn't mean there's a timeline, friends. Some losses you never get over. There's some people you're just never going to stop missing. But there's always a way for God to use our grief for good, for the blessing of others. That's what Jacob missed. Then we skip ahead and we see that the brothers miss the fact that they just fulfilled the prophecy they heard about 20 years ago. They're all bowing down. Now, Joseph sees that, and what did, what did, he would have remembered that second dream, wouldn't he? Where the sun and the moon symbolizing his mother and father would have bowed down to him, so he knew there was more to come. The brothers miss it. But yet, here's Reuben. Reuben, who has been a terrible son. Just go back and read Genesis um, you know, we, we've, we went through the story of Tamar, and that makes everybody squirm when you read that. Go back and read Reuben's story. It's equally squirm-worthy, okay? Like, it'll make you squirm in your seat what he did. My point is, these are not like what you, if you're inventing a religion, holding up going, here's the paragon of righteousness. That's not Reuben. What has happened is God's grace has begun to work in Reuben's life. He recognizes a reckoning has happened. He understands God is just. He understands, hey, wait a minute, maybe our sin is coming back to haunt us. Maybe, just maybe we shouldn't have done that. Now here's what Reuben does for us, friends. Whenever we have those reckonings and we go, oh my goodness, I've just been caught in my sin. Whenever we have those reckonings, it reminds us to ask the question, who are we really? Not who are you to your family, not who are you to your friends. Who are we really? And the answer, of course, is who you really are is going to come through when nobody's watching. That's how you know. But here's the thing. You know somebody's always watching. Namely, God Almighty. That's what Reuben had come to realize. He had been walking with this on his conscience for 20 years. And he knew all along, God saw this. And we've been found out. And what's beautiful is, when Reuben gets home, he's become not only compassionate, where he was callous beforehand, he's become courageous. Because notice what happens with Jacob. They leave Simeon as surety. they got to go back. They have money put in their sacks. What's the significance of that? Significance of that? They come back next time, Joseph can accuse them of stealing. Guess what the penalty would be? instant death. Joseph has the power to do that. Why does Joseph do this? He loves his brothers. He's providing for them. He's taking care of them. He's got a plan for all of this. So they're already freaked out. They get home. Jacob hears that he's lost another son. And now they're still asking for Benjamin. And here's where Reuben shows he's been changed. Jacob hasn't changed yet. Reuben's just beginning to change. What does he say? Take my sons. Take both of my sons, Dad. Compassion and courage have now met 
in the person of Reuben. And still Jacob doesn't get it. He still says, nope, you'll just send me down to my death with gray, in my gray hairs if you do this. And, and here's what we need to see about this sin of Jacob. He's, he's so focused on what he has been taken from him that he can't see what he has or what God is doing. Isn't that so true in our lives? When you lose something, and I'm not, I'm not just talking about a loved, a loved one. So many of us walk with loss all the time. Maybe it was something you were looking forward to, vacation that didn't happen. Maybe it was, you know, reunion with a friend that didn't happen. Maybe it was just a good supper that turned out bad. Everybody's going through loss here, and, and the temptation always is to focus on what we don't have instead of thanking God for what he's given us. And what we see with Joseph, in, and what's going to happen in our lives is, and, and just pause and think about this, nobody in here, if you're a Christian, I, I would venture, none of us that are believers, would come up and say, you know, the times God has drawn closest to me is when everything was just awesome. That's not it, is it? It's, it's when, we're, when we're falling down, when things are going poorly, that we see our need. And what Joseph learned was, even when things are going well for me circumstantially, I am no less needy. I am no less dependent on this God. And that's what he'd learned that Jacob hadn't learned. So Reuben emerges as kind of the anti-Jacob. Reuben's getting it. Jacob's still learning. And isn't this great, friends? Here's Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes, who still doesn't get it. Isn't that encouraging? There's hope for people like you and me if Jacob was this messed up. Okay? We, we, we've got hope in the gospel. So let me say a couple things as we close here. Okay? First of all, you don't want to see Joseph just as a pattern to follow here, but as a parable that points us to Jesus. Okay, so the point here is not be more like Joseph. Okay, there's things we should em emulate from Joseph, things we should imitate, but that's not why this story was put in the Bible. Not the sole reason, at least. The main reason was to point us to the greater son, the one who will emerge from the line of Judah. Notice the parallels of Jesus' story in Joseph's. Jesus betrayed by his brothers and then reunited with them, his brothers and sisters. Hebrews 2, 11 through 12 says, Jesus is no longer ashamed to call us brothers. Not no longer. He's therefore not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. We're his family. And unlike Reuben, we don't, Jesus didn't have to be persuaded to love his brothers. He willingly set aside his riches to go become like his brothers and sisters and to give his life for them, to reconcile them to his father. And just like Joseph weeping over his brothers, Jesus weeps. Shortest verse in the New Testament. Remember that in Sunday school? Go memorize a Bible verse. Everybody went to John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept. Okay? Shortest verse in the New Testament, but one of the most profound. We serve a God who weeps. Jesus lost a friend who he's going to raise in a few minutes. He's not fake crying. He's not an actor. 
Like the Hebrew word here for wept, the Greek word means something like shoulder-shaking sobs. He knows what he's going to do, and yet he still weeps. Why? Because he's a sympathetic high priest. He hates death. He hates a brother like Lazarus being stripped away from life from his sisters Mary and Martha. And he, Jesus, knows that he himself will have to give his life to reconcile his brothers and sisters. That he himself, who divested himself of his glory, will now be treated poorly, even by his own family, just like Joseph was. Why'd he do it? Wouldn't most of us give up? Betrayed? Let down? That was Jesus' life on this earth, my friends. Why'd he keep going? Because the Savior who weeps is the same Savior who can save. He's the better Joseph, the greater Reuben, the better Jacob. He's the one who in our place wrestles with God. He turns our famines into feasts as He comes to us in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. You and I have a completely provided for salvation in Jesus. That's why we sing hymns. That's why we worship. That's what Jesus is up to. Let's get more specific as we finish. Where do you need to be reconciled in your life right now? This is a story about reconciliation beginning. And and there's nothing that will test us like relationships, will there? With your spouse, with your friends, your siblings. Your closest people are the ones who can hurt you the most. And nothing will test you like relationships. And here's what God is saying to us through this story of Joseph. You and I have got to get the vertical axis of reconciliation correct. We have to be made right with God. Jesus, our older brother, does that. Okay? Therefore, here's your identity, dear Christian, brother or sister. You are a reconciled exile. Okay? You've been reconciled to God, and therefore, this earth is not your home. So you move from the vertical to the horizontal plane. When you know vertical reconciliation, you can begin to live out horizontal reconciliation in this life. Provided you know your identity that you've been reconciled to your father, but you are still in exile. Therefore, you do not have to react like Jacob. You don't have anything to protect. There's nothing to lose in your relationships now. So what keeps us from reconciliation? A whole host of things, doesn't it? But it essentially comes down to pride. We try to reconcile, and sometimes that doesn't happen. It's a broken world. Here's what Joseph evidences for us. Here's the life Jesus calls us to in union with him. A willingness to live in a posture of reconciliation. To welcome others, even as we have been welcomed by Jesus. Don't you love that verse in Romans 15? Welcome one another just as Jesus has welcomed you. Do we, do we project that as believers? Hey, I, I will be reconciled with you. I live in that posture because I know what Jesus has done for me. That's the only way to be reconciled. That's the only way to be a reconciling person is to be humbled by the fact that we're so bad, so sinful, we had to be reconciled to God by the death of His Son. No more room for pride. No more room for self-protection. That allows us to live in a posture where when people wrong us, we can move towards them instead of of away from them. 
I, I know that's maybe controversial to say. Sometimes wrongs require legal action. I'm not saying that every wrong you, you used to automatically forgive. There's a process to that. We don't have time to talk about it. We'll get to it. Not this morning, but we'll get to it. Here's the point. I'm talking about the little daily things that can so often ruin relationships. Are we living in a posture of reconciliation because we know the power of God's reconciliation for us in the cross? What we need, friends, in other words, is a rescue from Jesus, from ourselves and from our sin. And here's the good news of this story. Joseph, the younger brother, rescues his brother, brothers. Jesus, the older brother, will rescue us, his younger brothers and sisters. As I was thinking about that this week, it brought me back to a story from my childhood. We, uh, we used to go to um, beaches in North and South Carolina for a, a, a summer break, and um, one time we were there, um, my oldest brother was in college at the time, I think. He was probably a freshman. I was about 10 or so. And uh, my parents had got me and my younger brother uh, a boogie board, which of course we fought over. I won, so I got it. And then we got and went running into the ocean, right? So what I didn't notice, and the you know, waves are crashing, I couldn't hear my, my mom shouting at me. Running into the ocean, I ran right into a rip current. So if you've ever been caught in one of those, it's pretty terrifying. That's when the currents will pull you out to sea and pull you under. They are very strong. Water wasn't super deep. I had fallen in and tried to jump on into it, my boogie board, and, and went under pretty quickly. And all of a sudden realized I couldn't get back up. I started to panic. And then I felt two strong arms grab a hold of me and pull me up out of the water. And it was my older brother. It was the one he, he saw everything happening. He came sprinting in. And he was he's, uh, he's, you know, athlete, athletic guy, strong, all the things. He came in and just wrenched me out of that water and threw me onto the beach. And after that, you know, I'm coughing and hacking, and, you know, uh, my mom's like, are you okay? Now, why did you do that? Okay, so is that, that kind of a thing? <laughs> but what it reminded me of is as we read this text and finish it here this morning, we need a rescue. You're underwater. That's what Joseph's brothers started to learn when they were at their starving worst, is there's a feast from the rescue of the one to whom Joseph points us to, namely Jesus. This is not just a family reunion back in the ancient Near East. This is a picture of the reunited family Jesus makes us in himself, moving us from famine to feasting and reunion. That's the hope we have as believers. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you do rescue through Jesus by the Spirit Yours is a Trinitarian rescue, O oh God. Thank you. Father, we are starving in our souls this morning. Feed us by your word. Send us into this world to live, not as those who have been disinherited, but as beloved children, as reconciled younger brothers and sisters to our older brother Jesus. You are Heavenly Father, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.